Welcome to the Food and Beverage Processor Forum, brought to you by Food and Beverage Ontario. I'm Dyson Wells. And I'm Chris Conway, CEO at Food and Beverage Ontario. Coming up in today's show, we're stepping into a brand new 2023 by having a look back at how the industry has changed and adapted over the past years. Labour market expert Kevin Elder with Food Processing Skills Canada will be joining us to put things into context. We'll talk everything from identifying gaps in the workforce to tactics employers are using to attract qualified professionals from a limited labour pool. That's all coming up in just a moment, but first, It's the new year. Let's catch up on what Food and Beverage Ontario set in motion in 2022 and what we can look forward to this year. So first off, Chris, I'm going to break the cardinal rule and wish you a happy new year, even though we're well into January. Happy new year. Yeah. Um, So this whole episode is going to be First off, our launch of a new podcast that FBO is putting together. So perfect timing with a new year. Uh, But this episode is also going to be a look back, ironically, instead of stepping forward, because we think it's most important to have context before we go into the new year. So with that, I'm going to pose a challenging question. What has Food and Beverage Ontario been up to in the past year? Well, thanks very much, Jason. As you know, we always talk about we have three priorities, labor, labor, labor. So everything I'm going to mention is related to that in some way, shape or form. So first and foremost, our flagship labor program is Careers Now, which obviously you've been involved with, I've been involved with, and we have a lot of partners on that program, You know, many partners, including post-secondary institutions, other associations, and so on, and many member companies who participated. So really the purpose of the program is to connect job seekers with industry employers, And I would recommend to everybody actually to check out our new employer resource to hire qualified people for your food business. So we actually uh, will provide some information for that. We have links on our website as well. And we have a separate website for Careers Now also. But check out the FBO website for Careers Now information. And there you're going to find uh, links to register for virtual job fairs, access skills training, a hiring coach. You can post jobs at Careers Now Employer for full-time and student positions. So, and it's a program that's doing many, many things. So it really has many other dimensions to it. It's a fantastic program. Beyond that, we've done some regional workforce pilots through Careers Now and also a program we were running with OMAFRA, our third-party agreement program. So specifically, we were looking at One of the workforce pilots was filling the talent gap in Ontario's food and beverage manufacturing sector. We did that with the City of Brampton and the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. And that was sort of a great template for us to look at other regions. And so we had a stakeholder committee uh, involved with that. And we also have a rural and semi-rural, semi-rural, or sorry, I should say rural and semi-urban analysis that we did as well. So the idea with these was really to have all different areas of the province that you would encounter for food and beverage manufacturing. So for example, if you're in an urban setting, you have the Brampton example you can look at. Brampton is sort of number one for food and beverage processing. So you can look at that and say, you know, what is Brampton doing that's making it so good? What can other people do to emulate that? And then you've got a rural setting where if you're running a facility there, there are things you can learn from that, what some of the challenges are. And also semi-urban. So if you have an area like Brantford, for example, um, you know, you can look at that and, and say, okay, well, what are the things that are going to apply to me? So we've used a similar framework in all three cases, but we're looking at the specific things like transportation, childcare, so on and so forth, housing that play into attracting and retaining labor in those settings. Right. So yeah. highly, re- highly recommend checking those out. They're, they're very well done, uh, high quality reports and really a great guideline for anybody looking to recruit into the industry, um, mm-hmm. no matter where you're located in the province. Absolutely. And then uh, we have a workforce and cultural development webinar series. So that took place over the course of last summer and into the fall a bit. We recorded some webinars with leaders in HR and business development strategy, and we really provided some expert guidance to employers and HR staff, and especially in small and medium-sized operations. So the idea here is, you know, you look at the culture in your organization, and particularly small and medium-sized companies, you know, do they have the resources to address some of these things that we've seen in the studies about recruiting people. You know, if you're recruiting younger people in particular, they're looking for things like, oh, is there a gym located nearby? Do you have any extracurricular uh, 
things going on through the workplace. Uh, you know, is there an ultimate Frisbee league? Uh, who knows what they're interested in necessarily, but it's all about developing that culture to attract and draw people in because we think we have a lot to offer as an industry. So it really talks about some of those pieces and it's, it's aimed at particularly small and medium sized companies that may not have the resources in-house to develop these things. Yeah. So great series. I highly recommend you check it out. It's archived on our website. And then the skilled trade study. So skilled trades, we use skilled trades as well. Obviously been a huge push by the province to uh, get people into skilled trades. So we've got a labor market analysis and trend assessments completed uh, for food and beverage processors. So the report is titled Understanding Ontario's Food and Beverage Manufacturing Sector. And uh, it's a pilot project that surveys challenges in attracting and retaining skilled trades. It's a really good so the skilled trade study and recommendations has many things that I think people would find interesting. And one of them is that when people get skilled trades, get in and get the exposure to a company in our sector, they, they oftentimes tend to stay. And one of the big issues we come across is awareness. And, and really, it is making people aware that we are also an employer for skilled trades. So it may not be top of mind when they graduate, but they should have a look at us as well. So um, great study. Highly recommend you check it out. Again, available on our website. We've also partnered with the Ontario Native Education Counselors and Discoverability Network. So two groups, a lot of the studies we've done saying there was a lot more we could do with First Nations and also uh, for people with disabilities. So um, the work we're doing with First Nations has really taken off. I got to say it's uh, and really in two ways. One is we can offer programs and training if people are interested in getting jobs in the sector who are located in First Nations. And also, if they're interested in starting up something in a First Nation, so uh, they can learn about the industry and how they would set up food and beverage processing facilities on site. So really, two things. And we've really made a lot of headway with that. So that's a very exciting area. And also, the Discoverabilities Network, you know, if you're familiar with uh, the uh, AODA legislation and so on for people with uh, disabilities, then you know the full breadth and scope of, of what you can potentially be dealing with with disabilities. So it's something you do need a lot of expert guidance on in terms of understanding, you know, who you can hire, how you may be able to work with them. Um, and we had some webinars related to that that explained some things specific to that to better understand. But it's a very broad area. Um, you have visual, auditory, many other types of disabilities out there. That, so just understanding how to work with that and the Discoverabilities Network is our partner on that, uh, that we engage through the Ontario Chamber. Mm -hmm. And then finally, at the national level, the CARC uh, initiative were involved with the Canadian Agricultural Human Resources Council. So that's a national workforce strategic plan advisory committee initiative that we're involved with. And the objective there is it's bringing together groups from across the industry, not just in food and beverage processing, but they're developing a strategy for labor recruitment and retention at the national level. So very, very important work that's being done there. And we're involved in a couple of the working groups as well. Food and Beverage Canada is co-chairing it. So it's a great initiative, initiative to be involved with. We're involved with primary agriculture there and other groups. So um, that's one that's uh, national in scope, really big picture, lots of exciting things happening there. And I think we have a lot to offer from our experience on the provincial level with some of the things I just mentioned. And uh, so those are a few of the things that we're doing. There's yeah. <laughs> uh, lots of stuff going on, but obviously, yeah, lots and lots of things happening. We had a languages workforce pilot going at one point and, you know, and so on, and that's going to continue. But many other things as we get into 2023, and we're really excited to see the Grow Ontario announcement uh, at the end of last year, which only is, is just going to bolster the work we've been doing in this regard. And also you know, the work we're doing with two ministries in particular, obviously the Ministry of Agriculture, uh, OMAFRA provincially, and also the Provincial Ministry of Labor. Well, that's a, that's a hell of a lot of things that we've oh, been up yeah. to. So I appreciate you giving us a bit of a, an overview and uh, I'll let you catch your breath. Uh, yeah. And what we'll do is in the meantime, we'll bring in Kevin Elder and we can have a conversation as to, you know, what the labor markets look like over the past few years. Leading into the new year is the perfect time to explore the industry's labor market over the past few years. For the launch of our podcast, we're looking at looking to talk about the challenges and opportunities presented to processors as they grapple with the onset of COVID-19, how the sector has adapted, and where it's taking us. 
We'd like to shed some light on the industry's labor gaps, specifically where these gaps lie in relation to the sector's workforce, whether it frontline trades or management. Additionally, we'll have a look at the industry's participation rates by demographics. Is the industry making concerted efforts to recruit underrepresented groups? And what role do temporary foreign workers play in the industry? Food Processing Skills Canada takes a snapshot of the food and beverage labor market around the onset of the pandemic, which it published in 2021. It's an interesting point in time for sure. It also presents critical context for those looking to assess today's emerging labor trends and outlooks in the food and beverage processing industry. Not surprisingly, the report quickly identified labor as a top of mind issue with seven in 10 processors saying issues around labor pose a quote, great challenge to their business. Compounded with high turnover rates, many of them are saying that recruitment is getting harder, not easier. With us today to help contextualize this tectonic shift in the industry is Kevin Elder, Project Manager, Labor Market Information with Food Processing Skills Canada. Kevin studied international development at the University of Calgary and has lived and worked all over the globe. He grew up in Alberta and Calgary and is now making his home in Ottawa. His introduction to food and beverage processing was a vapor heat treatment facility manager at a mango plant in Australia. Kevin joined Food Processing Skills Canada in 2017 and has been leading the organization's labor market information insight since that time. At FPSC, uh, he coordinates and analyzes the latest qualitative and quantitative information for industry stakeholders. Kevin also represents Food Processing Skills Canada and the industry on a variety of national and regional committees to ensure decision makers have access to the best available information. When he isn't reviewing data, he's likely coaching, playing, or watching sports. Uh, Kevin, before we get into where we are today and where the sector is headed leading into 2023, I know you're a big soccer fan, so we talked about this in our pre-interview. Uh, how are you feeling as the dust settles uh, from the World Cup? No, I enjoyed it. Uh, Canada gave a good account of themselves. Um, we were a bit unlucky in that uh, I think the order of the matches didn't do us any favors. We were the ones that showed everyone Belgium were beatable. We just didn't manage to beat them ourselves. And then uh, we riled up Croatia, which turned out to be a bad thing. And uh, <laughs> we were, we were oh, I was making a finger thing, but you can't see my hands. But it was, we were very close to, to tying up Morocco. Uh, just the ball didn't get all the way over the line. So that kind of gave a good account of themselves. And pre-tournament, I picked Argentina to win the World Cup. So I was pleased to be proven correct. It's always good when your team wins. Indeed. Um, perfect. So let's pivot back to food processing. I'm wondering if you can give listeners a little context on the disruption the industry has grappled with in the past couple of years. To begin, let's first get a sense of scale for those who may not be familiar. How large is the sector? And for a layman's perspective, how many people do we have working in this industry? So... Nationwide, there's about 13,000 food and beverage processing businesses. Um, about 5,000 of those are whether sole proprietor, entrepreneur, family-run businesses that don't have any employees, and 8,000 of them are employers. And there's over 300,000 people working in the sector. Uh, for Ontario, there's almost 5,000 businesses in total. Um, about 2,000 of them are the family-run uh, no-employee businesses and 3,000 are employers, and there's over 110,000 people working in the sector in, in Ontario. And um, because Ontario represents such a large part of the sector, um, off, quite often the national numbers and the Ontario numbers are very closely aligned because Ontario makes up such a huge percentage of the numbers. Mm-hmm. So, um, in other words, it's quite large. Yeah, it's a very important sector and uh, produces all of the food and drink that we need to get through the day. And so whether you've got a cup of coffee or a beer as you're listening to this, the food and beverage processor was involved in making it. Right. I think what something that's really caught um, my eye from, from your association when it comes to their labor market reports is the timing. Um, you guys do have a fantastic report uh, at the crossroads um, that has a look at nationwide 
um, how the industry is faring. And you guys took a snapshot um, before the pandemic, and you guys have now taken a snapshot in 2021 as we were in the throes of COVID-19. Um, I was wondering if you can kind of contextualize how the industry has adapted, um, just kind of characterize how the industry has adapted to COVID-19. What did it look like before and what's it look like now? Well, I think the best way I can describe it is like the, there's a labor shortage and COVID-19 exacerbated the labor shortage. But for food and beverage processors, I would, I would use the analogy of like, if you're in Eastern Canada, then you're used to shoveling a lot of snow and your city that you live in is used to shoveling a lot of snow. And that's sort of food and beverage processors. They're used to dealing with the situation as it is, where if you look at Vancouver right now, as we're talking, they've got a lot of snow and they don't know how to handle it because they're not used to it. And so for a lot of businesses, the COVID-19 related labor shortage is like snow in Vancouver. They're not used to it, but food and beverage processors have been living it and it just got worse. It was a bigger dump of snow, but we knew what we were doing. Um, the major challenge that our sector faced was that there was no stopping. Nobody stopped. They kept processing. They, um, they integrated new PPE and new safety measures in the facility overnight and kept going again the next day. Uh, it was very challenging. There was a lot of pivoting in terms of market, um, like a, the dairy stuff made the news where um, people that produced large commercial quantities of milk had no one to buy their 20 liter, 40 liter bags of milk anymore, and they had to switch to consumer quantities. And so other facilities were making those sort of shifts as well. But also um, other sectors completely shut down. And from the labor standpoint, initially, there was some people that did come into the sector, like we've got more people working in the sector in 2022 than we did in 2020. Um, there's still a lot of vacancies in the sector and there's room for more people. But uh, the fact that we were going and operating um, did provide jobs for people when if they were, for instance, in food service where their business just completely shut down and they couldn't get work, there was work available in food and beverage processing. And so I think it boosted that. Um, employers also went, um, there's a lot of anecdotal stories about how they handled recruitment and, and different things through through the pandemic. but just at an industry-wide level, the average wage for workers in the sector increased by almost $3 an hour throughout the, the pandemic to, to help um, keep people there. And where the real crux is, is now that other sectors are starting to pick back up, um, there's still a labor shortage. And immigration is a huge part of the Canadian economy um, in terms of our overall national labor force. And during the pandemic, labor, immigration was was greatly reduced, but people were still aging out of the workforce. They're, they're retiring. Um, I don't think it's a surprise to anyone in Canada that we've got more people retiring than young people entering the workforce. So immigration is what covers that, um, that shortfall. And so without immigration, the competition for workers became greater. And as other sectors like tourism and hospitality pick back up again, they're wanting to bring those workers back or attract workers from other sectors into their, their area. And so it's a real challenge right now to, um, to retain the workers that you have and also to bring in new people as your workforce ages out. Yeah, it sounds like a real challenge uh, on another front as well in, in that we know there's a shared labor pool and there's a lot of discussion about trying to attract the same people. But the industries are also doing the same things in many regards. Um, when it comes to trying to attract these demographics. So it really is a large challenge of trying to, I guess, punch through the noise and catch the attention of, of job seekers, which is a perfect transition to asking you who exactly is working in this industry right now um, and who are we trying to, to attract? Who should we be trying to attract uh, as employers? Well, I think... As an industry, we've done really well with um, the new Canadian and immigrant demographics. Um, the last numbers I saw showed that the workforce was over 30% uh, made up of immigrants, but only 9% of those had arrived in the last five years. And so they're doing a good job keeping the people in the industry that have they've come into the industry. Um, but basically, it's anybody that you can find. Um, our sector, more than any other manufacturing sector, is rural. And in rural areas, there's a 
there's always the pull of urbanization. And so getting people to move the other way is a real challenge. And I, I know that employers um, are always looking for how they can find new pockets of people to recruit. And um, certainly um, in, in populations that are underrepresented in the economy as the, in, in the whole, those are the, the ways that you want to try to bring people in. So there's some ideas that are in the Crossroads to Greatness report and in some of FPSC's other reports um, that look at some ideas that different employers have done, but it's really what's around in your area. Um, for example, if you, you live close to a First Nation, then you definitely want to be trying to recruit from that First Nation. But if you're located in an area where there isn't really an easy commute from a First Nation in your area, you can certainly still try to do that, and there's some stories of employers that have, but I would focus more on who's actually able to commute to where your facility is in your area um, but also to be aware of all of the challenges that your employees are facing, including your existing ones, because a lot of the ideas that you might bring in to recruit new people um, are also ways that you can retain the people that you have. So, for example, there was an, an employer that um, they were looking to recruit um, new, new Canadians, and so they contacted an immigrant serving agency and said, okay, we've got all these jobs available. We provide all of this training and onboarding so that the people will be safe when they come to our facility. And the immigrant serving agency said, well, that's great, but your facility is located 25 kilometers outside of the, this urban center. And they said, it's fine. We've hired a school bus and we'll be running a shuttle bus um, to get, get those people to the facility. And so it, it worked great until, until the first bus showed up. And then all the staff that also did that same commute in their own cars were like, hey, where's our bus? And so the employer immediately just got more buses. And then their staff were happy because they weren't spending the same on gas. And um, they were able to, to access a new pool of labor of people without vehicles. And so trying to, to figure out what those creative solutions are, whether it's um, like I talked to uh, one meat processor and they had uh, uh, they, they did poultry stuff and they did one shift. I think it was um, one day a week, it was like a four-hour shift where they made chicken nuggets. And it was a different sort of processing, um, I'm trying to think of the right word is, a processing um, line to what they normally did. And they had all part-time people, whether it was seniors or students, that would come in for this one four-hour shift to make chicken nuggets. And they only needed one shift to fill all their orders that they had. And so they were accessing a different labor pool for chicken nuggets than they were for the rest of their poultry products that they were producing. And so those are sort of a few examples of ways that you can try to draw into different, um, different pools, but really it's about um, figuring out who's in your area and whether it's a matter of saying, okay, how am I going to get you know, Dyson to come work for me because he lives close to my facility? Or is it something where I've got to convince Dyson to move here from another province or I've got to convince Chris to move here from another country? Like what's your... Figure out who's available to work in your area and what's how are you going to get them in. So, so it's a it, it can be in many ways a regional thing, and if it's not, um, if if you're not able to tap into the region, you really do need to get uh, incredibly creative. And and transportation's definitely uh, something that we've heard a lot of processors have been using to to try and draw in more people. Is it's difficult to to get people that are far away, but if you got a strong transportation route or even work with the municipality in your area, then it definitely makes a difference. Chris, I know um, I want to draw you into the conversation. I know that you talk to a lot of processors as well. Do you have examples in regards to that? You know, something I wonder about with this, um, you know, and I think we're touching on all the right themes in this discussion, is really, you know, I think on the whole, like in spite of some of these challenges, when you talk to people about the sector, you know, they very quickly realize that there are a lot of good opportunities here, right? Like I have discussions with, you know, not just our members, but a lot of government officials, you know, very quickly realize, you know, you can come in essentially off the street. You can make $22 an hour to start. You can get career advancement opportunities and so on. And somehow you, know, you hear a lot about various obstacles that people are encountering, but this is getting lost in the conversation to some degree. Like I can't think of anything out there that quite compares to food and beverage processing for those sort of opportunities, right? Like anything else you would do, you'd have to go in, you train, like a skilled trades is an example. We also use skilled trades. 
we're going to spend quite a bit of time in a pipeline to do that. So, and then, you know, someone finds out there's, like you're talking about right now, you know, there's an issue with transportation, there's an issue with, you know, and it very quickly gets derailed. But, you know, you look at, you know, really, there's, there's a great opportunity there. And I really do wonder about how do we better communicate that opportunity? Like that awareness somehow is getting lost in there. And then it becomes very quickly, people look at, oh, what's the inconvenient part of this? Um, and, and an opportunity like that can quickly get derailed. Yeah, I agree, Chris. I think that's a huge um, opportunity for the industry that the way that you can move through the career, like I, there's, I've lost track of how many VPs and um, facility managers that I've talked to that started on the floor that came in and the employer trained them. And it's, um, it's all of the things that that for me anyway, that I, my, my grandfather worked in manufacturing and it's the same sort of environment that he told me about that his work career was like, where the employer wanted to keep you there your whole career. Um, and so when I, I look at my, my peers, um, most of them have switched jobs multiple times. I mean, I've had a ton of employers myself and you go through and you look at the sector and it's not, it's, it's frozen in time. Like it, it wants to keep you there. And um, there's, there are um, so many great opportunities there as well. And especially, like I mentioned, the role piece as a, um, as a challenge to overcome. But it's, it's also an opportunity because when you, you look at the cost of living in Toronto or in other, other major urban centers and say, okay, well, if I'm going to work in this city and I'm making, like Chris used $22 an hour to start. And so if I can make $22, $22 an hour in Belleville or 22 hour dollars an hour in Toronto, one of them is going to give me a better quality of life. And that's still an urban one. And we're talking like some of these places are small towns where like I looked up um, one, one place just as a, a interprovincial comparison in, uh, in Quebec, a couple hours outside Montreal, and you can buy a house there for $110,000 and you make $24 an hour starting at that facility. And I'm like the, the quality of life that you can get. And so that's something that um, we're talking about employers to be aware of who's around and um, how they can draw them in. If you're trying to convince Dyson to move from another part of your own province, then use those sort of uh, the advantages that your community has. I mean, I, um, as you mentioned at the start, I've lived all over the world. And one of the things that I noticed was um, one of the places I was working overseas, I had a really rural placement and I couldn't spend money if I wanted to. There was no, no sporting events to go to. There was nothing to do. Um, so I just end up saving a lot of money and then I would go visit the big city and my colleagues there were always having financial trouble. They didn't, they weren't making very much money, but we were on the exact same salary, but I would come down, I would have a wonderful weekend out, <laughs> go and do all of the things that I couldn't do in my community and go back. And so I left with money in my pocket and they left out of pocket because they're trying to live in the city and just get by, whereas I'm able to go and visit and enjoy the city. And so, um, it doesn't take a lot when you look at some of the rent prices to realize that you could be working, you know, an hour, two hours outside Toronto, still come into Toronto, catch a couple of Blue Jays games on the weekend, rent a hotel, and still be up over your buddy that lives in Toronto. And so figuring out whatever the angle is to sell um, to your potential um, recruits about what your life is and also what the opportunities are. I think that um, quite often when you speak with professionals when you I mentioned the VPs and stuff that have come up through the line that pathway is still there whereas you talk to some other people like um, you say oh how did you get your job and it's like oh well I got hired right out of university with a bachelor's degree but now if you look at the job postings from that same employer you need a master's degree or a PhD and so the pathway that that VP took no longer exists and so whereas in food and beverage manufacturing those pathways still exist and so the, the opportunities that are there, they're real and they're genuine. And when you say that, yeah, you, know, you can come in off the street with $22 an hour to start, employers are quite good at going, oh, geez, Chris is a talented guy. I'm gonna, gonna invest in him and upskilling. And FPSC does a ton of this training and, and FBO as well. And so we know that there's uptake and employers are actually invested in doing this and, and getting people through the pipeline. And also to sell it too, when, when you've got young people coming in, that if you're saying, okay, you're 18, you've just finished high school and you want to work or you, are you going to go to university? It's like you're, you're coming in. If you choose to, to go into food and beverage manufacturing right away, you're also not carrying the student debt load and tuition has increased 
faster than rent has. And so when you, you sort of even out where you could be five years down the line, 10 years down the line, from going into food and beverage manufacturing, it's, a, it's an option that, that should be considered by a lot more people. Yeah. I was, I was wondering if we can take a look um, in terms of the type of roles the industry has and where those gaps are, specifically the distinction between frontline tradespeople and, uh, you know, more managerial roles, I guess I would say. How are things looking in, in those, in that kind of, those brackets, I guess? So when we did our, our survey that you, you mentioned earlier, we found like for Ontario, it was about 15,000 vacant positions. Um, in 2020, and that was before the pandemic. And so everything anecdotally I've heard since was that it got worse. Um, so there's tens of thousands of vacant jobs. And so the, the gaps are everywhere. The majority of them are frontline workers. There's gaps throughout, and Chris mentioned the skilled trades, that um, those ones are the trickiest ones because like when we talk about coming in, you can just, if you need a frontline worker, the onboarding, and the training available means that they could just hire you off the street. You could come in and get set up and start working and contributing to that factory. Um, but if you're if you need a skilled trade, there's a process. And for some of them, it's a year. And for some of them, it's three years. For some of them, it's four years. And so it's the lead time on those which makes the shortages more acute. And also the competition is like there's competition for every every worker. Um, but it's sort of those. The challenges with electricians is that so many people also want that electrician. And do you need a full-time electrician? Do you need an electrician two days? Do you need one on call? Like, what is it that you need and trying to find them? Uh, but we found gaps throughout. And one of the, the big things that we've noticed through the pandemic was, I mentioned with workforce aging out, was that um, there's certainly sectors that can offer better pay packets than food and beverage manufacturing. Um, and I was speaking, there was one, one HR manager that was an excellent recruiter um, and had a sort of specialized skill set and good connections with all of the local immigrant serving agencies, had been in food and beverage for 15 years, and basically got her salary doubled by uh, bank. And they, didn't need, they just needed someone to manage their HR internally. They didn't need any of the specialized skill set that she would bring with them, but I mean, what is she going to do? Turn down all of the money? So it's other industries are going to come and poach these people out. And that's what makes it tricky is that with the management level positions, with skilled trades, there's time that happens. So even if you're promoting from within, it still takes time for me to say, hey, Dyson, you've done really well as a line supervisor. Um, we know that you're interested in finance. We'd like to put you in an accountancy course, but you're not going to become the accountant for the company overnight. And so there needs to, those gaps are difficult to fill, but with with every facility, when you're looking for one accountant or one electrician, then there's more financial leeway in terms of what you're gonna, what you can, how you can sweeten the the package, than if mm -hmm. you're trying to say I need 20 people or I need six people, and you're raising the wages for for everyone in that role, it's a a different challenge. But certainly, people are needed. Um, across the industry, like every academic program I talk to that trains people for food and beverage manufacturing is like, oh, there's six jobs for every graduate and things like that, that they're, people are snapping them up and trying to get them before they've even finished their programs because there's such a high demand uh, for everyone. And so it's, it's really across the board and it's sort of any, it's like whack-a-mole, any, any area that, that uh, any stakeholder can help address is welcome. Right. Yeah, and I, I know that, um, Chris, I, you, you know this as well, we, FBO, did a trade study as well, and what we found was that one of the, one of the characteristics about being short on tradespeople, for example, is it, it can be, well, I always characterize it as a bit of a vicious cycle. Um, you can be short a tradesperson, and it can cause the rest of your staff to have to work overtime, leads to further burnout, which leads to even more gaps in uh, in your business. Um, and it tradespeople typically bring services that allow your operation to continue. And if you don't have certain tradespeople, you can be ground to a halt um, with the added pain of uh, lengthy wait times to try and get that person back into the into the facility. Um, Chris, uh, do you have examples of uh, how some some employers are are facing that, and maybe hopefully 
please God, let there be some sort of solutions for, for these businesses. Well, it's, it's interesting when I think of skilled trades and I think of the study we did, I really look at, you know, awareness again, right? Like that, that really becomes an issue. And like the survey showed that when people got in and they actually worked in food and beverage processing, a lot of them stayed, right? And they were happy and so on and so forth. Um, but it's, again, I think someone coming out of a skilled trade program, whatever that whatever that program is, we're not the first thing they think of, right? They're, they're thinking of something, you know, maybe they're, if they're an electrician, maybe they're thinking of contracting. I don't, I don't know, you know, residential contracting or something along those lines. But a lot of people are thinking about construction, right? I mean, there's a lot of talk about that with skilled trades and, you know, and so on and so forth. So I think that's another issue with us where we get into you know, and the studies show when people get in, they get in companies, the retention is pretty good. People are happy and so on and so forth, right? But it's, again, that awareness. And I think that's even more acute with the skilled trades. And it does definitely, as you mentioned, um, Dyson, it puts strain on everybody else when you don't have this, right? So you don't have people in skilled trades. Everybody else is running a lot harder when you don't have that uh, on hand. So that's that's another area that's really crucial for us. It'd be great that we could get some recognition as, you know, hey, we're I always say this, but we're here too. Don't forget about us. Um, you know, and that's the message I think we have more generally is, yes, we're food and beverage. We're also manufacturing, right? So everything that applies to manufacturing also applies to us. And please don't forget us in that context. Right. Yeah, I think um, one of the one of the things that a lot of employers turn to is temporary foreign workers. Um, I... I know that this is kind of a, a Pandora's box type situation. Um, how has the temporary foreign worker program uh, served the industry uh, over the past few years? And of course, this is the Pandora's box part. What are some of the barriers here? Well, I think there's nothing temporary about the need for, for workers. And um, we've, we've seen the temporary foreign worker program used by food and beverage manufacturers because there's no other effective immigration stream to get people in. Um, employers work really closely uh, nationwide with all of their, their provinces to ensure that the workers that they are bringing in um, will transition to, um, to become permanent residents, to become Canadians. That it's not, um, like we see on the primary agriculture side, they've got the seasonal agriculture worker program where people are coming in for a season and then returning to their home country, whereas in the processing side, except with uh, with some seafood um, that are seasonal, everybody is coming in and staying in Canada, and that's it. So it's it's just a stopgap to get the people because they aren't there locally, um, and the, all of the sort of there's a, Chris has mentioned awareness a few times, and there's a, just a general lack of awareness about the whole sector. Nobody knows what goes on. And I think that extends also to when you talk about temporary foreign workers, there's this idea that an employer is bringing them in because they don't want to pay um, a local person whatever they need to, to get them. Um, when the reality is we know that our sector is paying um, well above um, what's required. And I, I mean, I, I did a, this is a quick aside, but I looked at a whole bunch of meat processing jobs and I found that every single one of them that I looked at across the country was paying a living wage and so that's things like that where the wages are good and then when I was I was talking with um, with federal government um, elected officials and and uh, bureaucrats about it that when you're you're looking at the idea that oh well this would be a bad situation for a worker that could potentially exploit it I was like look here's a letter from this union here's a letter from this union here's a letter from this union all of them the TFWs come in, they join the union, they're part of uh, a protected uh, labor labor workforce. Um, we also see that um, like there's been a lot of advocacy that's been done from the processing side on, uh, on temporary foreign workers where they've had organized labor if their plants um, have that, but also the local municipalities talking about the benefit that the, the workers bring in. And just basically to counteract all of the points that you get in the larger media discussion about um, a temporary foreign worker program. But the, the real reason it, it's used is because there isn't another effective immigration stream. And we're starting to see some of that change. There's a, a few pilot programs 
right now going on. There's a, um, a rural immigration pilot. Um, there's a agri-food um, immigration pilot, which is specific to meat processing and, and mushrooms. And those are allowing whole families to come in because part of the challenge is with um, when you bring in a TFW is that until they get their permanent residency, their family can't come with them. And so you end up bringing over, it's just a really hard live, life situation. Like if you're in a relationship and you're like, okay, you can come move to Canada with me in two years. Mm-hmm. It makes those intervening two years very difficult. And so some of these pilot programs have addressed that and they've really helped um, food and beverage processors and uh, rural communities get the, the people that they need in there. But it's really, as far as why people use it, it's because they've tried everything else and it's very difficult to get people. And I, what one of the things that FBSC does in our labor market studies is we look at the regional situation because when you look at province-wide or nationwide, and you say, oh my goodness, look at, there's all these people that are out of work in Ontario. And yeah, but none of them are located in the communities where these jobs are. And then one of the other things um, that, that comes across as well is um, in our perception surveys that we've done, we found that if we ask people, it's like three out of 10 or three and a half out of 10 would consider a job in food and beverage manufacturing, just as is. And so without any education to raise awareness about what it's actually like, um, you're just going to have, if you had 10 unemployed people, only three of them are going to apply for your job. And so that's a real um, challenge that the industry needs to work at. But those programs are going to continue to be used until we get um, a steady flow of, of people that are they're able to come there. Yeah. I can see advocacy, raising awareness, effective communications is is all going to play a critical role and even touching into attracting foreign workers, attracting um, younger Canadians as well, which which uh, Fruit Processing Skills Canada also identified as, as one of the target audiences we need to be looking at to try and offset some of the loss that we'll have from a retiring workforce. Um, Chris, I know we've talked about this kind of stuff a lot. You're kind of the advocacy guru around here. What, what do we need to be doing? Uh, <laughs> what, as broad of a question as that is. Yeah. Well, you know, this work gets frustrating is, is, uh, I really do think in many ways we are doing the right things, um, as a sector. Like you look at the careers now program and, you know, we've essentially got all the right tools there. Uh, to recruit people into the industry. So in many respects, we're doing the right things, but we're in a crowded landscape. And I don't mean just in food and beverage processing um, and in the agri-food industry generally. I mean, you know, there are a lot of industries looking for labor right now. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're saying, you know, we have an issue and a lot of other people are saying that too. So it's it's this theme that we see generally is how do we cut through the clutter um, and the noise that's out there? So you go in and say this and you know, everybody else is saying the same thing. Oh, we need people too. We need people. We need people in skilled trades. We need people in the restaurant industry. We need people for this, that. Um, and so you hear a lot about labor. So, and, and um, you know, so in, in one respect, I think we're doing the right thing. Certainly the programs we have, we're touching on all the right points, whether it's, you know, virtual job fairs, we're doing micro-credentialing. A lot of stuff that's been talked about in studies, we're actually, you know, we're out there doing this. Uh, if you look mm-hmm. at it, language training, uh, we've engaged with First Nations, people with disabilities, and there's all kinds of stuff going on. And there's great stuff going on, really, truly. But, um, you know, it's very tough to cut through that clutter of noise. Um, and, you know, and to like, I, I'll give you an example. I always say this, but I grew up in the East Coast. I grew up in Newfoundland, uh, spent my summers in Nova Scotia. And um, there's a long tradition there of people moving out west, for example, uh, taking jobs in the oil sands and that sort of thing. I don't recall hearing a lot of people saying, I'm going to move and take a job for food and beverage manufacturing. Um, you know, and, and why not? Uh, when you when you look at the opportunity, presumably just as, just as viable, right? But we do run into this. So um, in spite of our targeted efforts, we are having a hard time. And that's why I keep talking about the awareness piece, because I really think it, it's coming down to that. It's coming down to that level of awareness. That's that's the biggest challenge is how do we cut through the clutter of noise out there with all the stuff about labor shortage and so on across many industries and say, hey, guys, here we are. Have a look at us. Um, 
that I think is the toughest challenge. In front of government, we have the same issue. Um, we have great uh, relationships uh, with the provincial government, particularly with OMAFRA, the Ministry of Agriculture, uh, the Ontario Ministry of Agriculture, um, and the Ministry of Labor. Um, but once we start getting, and with the Premier's office, but once we start getting outside into some of the ministries, we've, we've recently had some good discussions at Queen's Park. Um, but it is much tougher when you get to Treasury Board or Economic Development or Finance. Uh, they don't necessarily know us and they don't necessarily know about us. And people are often surprised. You say we're the largest manufacturing industry by employment in Ontario. And um, I ended up giving a webinar. It was nearly a year ago. Um, and I found that afterwards, uh, how many people were attending from the public service. It was it was a couple of hundred that attended who were policy advisors from across the provincial government. And I wasn't aware when I agreed to do this, and I found it afterwards. Um, and one of the comments we got consistently is feedbacks. People said, I had no idea how big the industry was. Um, you know, and that relates to the size of the opportunity as well. I mean, the Premier will often talk about, you know, getting people back in jobs. And we talked about temporary foreign workers a minute ago. And one of the comments you'll hear provincially a lot is, you know, making sure that people in Ontario are also getting in these jobs. Or I've heard the number 300,000, you know, that's anecdotal. I'm pulling that out of thin air. But I've heard this said a couple of times in, in speeches of people in Ontario that they're trying to get back to work. Um, you know, we're, we're part of that solution. Right, and we're a very big part of that solution potentially, and the spin-off benefits and so on that come with that, and not to mention the fact that you know, we're we're an essential industry, right? As we saw during COVID, we are very very important. Um, there's been a lot of media focus on our sector in particular lately. So, I'd say that I'd say we're doing the right things. We've got the right message. Uh, we're talking to the right people in government. It is tough to break through that and break through that clutter of noise out there, and really get to that level of attention. Yeah, not to beleaguer our, our, um, you know, whether they're working in ministry or government, um, but uh, any listeners like that, I, my question is, I mean, when we're talking about this, I can't help but think about um, how other provinces are, are handling some of this. And, and one of the conversations that happened uh, just before winter started was that Alberta started advertising to draw people in from Ontario which is obviously, you know, whether you like that or not, they're doing it. Um, but that's an example of a concerted effort from the government side on attracting people to certain industries. And I'm wondering if, if Ontario needs to be doing something similar in order to help us elevate that, that profile and make the industry more top of mind. There is a program that the... Um that's being run by the manufacturers and exporters. And there's a provincial version of it, uh, you know, the Buy Ontario program for manufacturing. Um, what's interesting is Quebec actually has one that's specific to food and beverage processing um, or food and beverage products, I should say. Um, so that's kind of neat. And, and just to mention to your point, Dyson, so there is, so there is a program out there. It's more broadly focused toward manufacturing. So not specific to food and beverage, but it would be interesting to see if we should, um, you know, go a bit more niche as Quebec has done and actually have something that's targeted to food and beverage products um, that are made in Ontario. So, um, you know, that just throw that out there. That's something that potentially could be looked at down the road. Mm -hmm. I'll just add to that too. On the, it, For me, it's the awareness piece. And so like, just like the same way I was saying, employers in the rural areas need to highlight their cost of living difference. That's what the Alberta ad campaign was doing was, highlighting the uh, the cost of living difference. And they just came up with numbers uh, this week that showed that Alberta had the highest um, in-migration it's had in a decade in the in 2022. Um, wow. Or 2021 or whatever, since they did the campaign. It was an 18.3% increase in in-migration, I think. And so those sort of awareness campaigns do, do work. And so I think... For Ontario as a province to do one, it needs to be more targeted around the areas where we need to get the people in, um, because Ontario does have the default when people are looking to move, with, whether it's from Eastern Canada or Western Canada, they're like, okay, well, there's lots going on in Toronto, and they'll head to major urban centres. I mean, um, you mentioned my bio, I grew up out west, and what struck me the first time I came to Ontario was I was driving through um, Toronto to, to go to a wedding, um, and we passed like Ajax 
which I'd never heard of. And the population, like my mom's from Saskatchewan. And so I was like, this would be the like largest city in Saskatchewan. I've never heard of it. And then you go to the, the next, like w w all of these. And so people don't like the same. It's awareness. I didn't realize how big the GTA was when I first came out until you see it. And I think so there's that same awareness can be used to, to draw people in. So whether it's a sort of a Ontario funded campaign that's like, okay, we need to get people to Windsor-Essex, or we need to get people to Niagara, or we need to get wherever those workers are, uh, are needed to get them in, or whether it's come work in food and beverage, whatever the, however you want to, to style it. But I think there's the, Alberta has shown that that, that sort of strategy, uh, while abrasive to the people that are being recruited from, like people are, are listening. And it was only Southern Ontario. There were no, no move to Alberta ads in, in Ottawa. <laughs> well, I, I have yeah. a joke. I have a joke about that. Actually, Kevin, to your point about you know the size of the opportunity when you when you get in the GTA. Uh, there's a joke in Newfoundland. The largest city in Newfoundland is Hamilton, and the second largest is Red Deer. Um, you know, so I think everyone was always aware that you know, and it was it was steel. I guess was people going to Hamilton for that. But but yeah, mm -hmm. that the opportunities were were elsewhere, and and we're seeing that more and more these days, right? Yeah, and just to the just back to comparing other provinces, like um, one of the things I looked at when the census sort of published the the data about um, ages and where people are working was I looked at what percentage of the workforce is over fifty five, so they're going to retire in the next decade, and then what percentage is under thirty. And for food and beverage um, nationwide, it's about a quarter of the workers are over fifty five, and about twenty one percent are under thirty. Um, but for Ontario, it's actually, there's more workers under 30 than there are over 55. It's one of only four provinces like that in, in Canada. And so the situation is better in Ontario than in, in other provinces, certainly for employers that are located here. Um, and you'll see a lot more um, pain from, from the Atlantic provinces where um, Ontario is pretty close. It's 26% under 30 and 24.5% over 55, whereas like New Brunswick is 18% under 30 and 33% over 55. And so it's, the situation's challenging for sure, but it's, Ontario's got a leg up because it is drawing people in for uh, where they, they just think, when we talk about awareness, right, that if you're, as Chris managed growing up in Newfoundland, you, you think Ontario, you think Alberta, but there might be lots of great jobs in Manitoba and nobody's moving to Manitoba because they don't have the awareness of those opportunities. And so that's what it comes down to is, is I think employers need to start working with their community, um, making connections with whatever they can do to, to make their, their community and their employment uh, more attractive. Like one of the examples um, that I saw was a, a meat plant realized that there were no childcare centers that opened early enough for their workers to drop off their kids. And so they paid them to have their daycare center open half an hour before the shift time started so that parents that worked for them could drop out their kids off um, and have that care as opposed to going, oh, I can't work there because I, I have nowhere to stick my kid for um, until my shift starts. And so there are things like that where employers are looking at what are the barriers that people are facing outside of, of the commute to my office and outside of, or of my facility and outside of, of the normal or things employers consider? Like what's preventing Chris from taking this job at my facility and then trying to make sure that they address it? It might not bring everybody in, but you're certainly, um, every concern that workers have, a lot of employers are already thinking three steps ahead of them and, and trying to uh, take care of those needs. Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess to pivot back to our introduction, we talked about this, and um, I did lift that uh, that uh, tectonic shift line from your report. Um, so full uh, full credit to you guys on that, because that's that was a great line. Uh, I think it sums it up perfectly. Uh, one of the things that I was wondering is when it comes to trying to attract the younger generation, I think a lot of employers are trying still to figure out what what is what is their actual values in relation to other other demographics um i know there's a lot of kind of conversation about what sh what should i be um highlighting as as things to attract them uh, so we did some 
perceptions work. Um, it's available on our, our website. Um, it's called the Working Together Report, and it looks it, it's included in the Crossroads to Greatness Report as well. Um, and we looked at the perceptions of, of different generations in the in the workplace, and what we found in terms of the younger people, like sort of under 25, the Generation Z specifically, um, was that one of the things where they were sort of different from other generations on was that they really wanted their employer to be aware of and trying to address larger issues. And so whether that's um, waste reduction or the environment or um, mental health or worker um, or like living wage or anything like that, something that just shows to say, yep, this is an issue. We as an employer are um, trying to address it however we can. And um, for example, I was at the, the Canadian Meat Council conference in the summer and they had an employer that did packaging um, up there. And they had said that one of the things that they did was they put in electric charging stations and they offered staff a rebate if they bought an electric vehicle. And they said, we got people applying with us just because they saw that we were an employer that cared about this stuff. They got media coverage because it's, people don't expect that of a food and beverage manufacturer. And so they were like, oh, wow, this is really neat. And they said, we got free press. We got a boost in recruitment. And it, and it just aligns with everything that we were seeing in a survey. But just to go back again to the awareness point was across every generation, the number one way that they found out about job opportunities was through their family and friends. And so when you're raising awareness, it's not just on focusing on, okay, how do I get my, my job opportunity or my sector in front of people that are under 25? Because it's their family and friends. And so if you can reach their parents to say, hey, did you know that there's a good job at the, at the, uh, the bakery or the potato chip factory or the, you know, the apple farm or wherever it is, those people will say, oh, Dyson, you're looking for work. I heard there's a good job at the Apple farm. Like that's, you need to make those connections and raise the awareness because that's one of the big things. When you think about how people relate to each other, when you just think about your own friends and what they do. And I have very little idea of what my friends do on a day-to-day and their actual job. But if I have a friend that's a teacher, in my head, I roughly know what that is. And I know how to place them and say, oh, wow, that's a good job. Or it's like, but if you come to me and you like in my bio, I said I managed a vapor heat treatment facility. Most people have no idea what that is. And so they have no idea what it was. And they're like, but you were managing something that's good, right? And so it's yeah. trying to create those that relatableness for family to say, oh, I heard about this. It's a good place to work. Go, go apply or when you're able to say, oh yeah, I'm working here, it's great, then your friend's like, oh yeah, I need a job, I'll come work with Dyson at this place, or I'll go work with Chris at that place. And so mm-hmm. really making those connections, but, and the other thing just on the connections theme was for the young people, um, they really wanted to have a social aspect to work. Uh, they wanted to make friends at their workplace. And so whether that's something like uh, you have a barbecue you know, once a month, or you have a softball team, or you do a bowling night or whatever, like have ways for your staff to connect socially. And that will help Gen Z feel like more of a part of the workforce. But, you know, be aware, like when we, we asked the, the boomers the same question, and they said, really resoundingly, no, I've already got friends, I don't want to make them at work. And so right. every generation is different. So if you're trying to focus on saying, okay, I want to try to bring out semi-retired people and have them work part-time for me, the way that you're going to try to recruit them is different than the way that you're going to try to recruit um, the younger people. But it's really finding out what those connections are and, and perceptions work is really useful to give you a general sense of where people are looking um, and how they're, how they're looking for work. And we've done some on some of the underrepresented groups as well and just what they think about um, sort of work that they're going to do. Um, but there's a perception, there's a lot of like just no perception out there that, that Chris has alluded to as well, where people don't know anything about the industry. And it's important for employers to remember too, like when you're talking to your, your MPP or your MP um, or even your local government, that if the general public doesn't know anything about your sector, then chances are that your elected official might be 
one of those people that doesn't know anything about your sector. And mm -hmm. so making sure that you can uh, tell your story in a way that's going to want someone when they say, like, um, I was discussing this with, with the committee, it's like, you don't know what opportunities are available to you until you tell your friends that you're unemployed. And then all of a sudden you get bombarded with somebody saying, oh, I heard this, I, they're looking for someone, they're looking for someone. And you get all of these opportunities that people are holding on to. And so it's important for the food and beverage processing sector to make sure that people are aware of all the opportunities that are available right now. Yeah, uh, to steal uh, Chris's line here, you gotta tell them what you're gonna tell them, you gotta tell them, and then you gotta tell them what you just told them. And uh, sorry, Chris, uh, jumped too quickly on that one for you, so uh, stealing it. Um, I do love this conversation a lot, especially when it comes to trying to attract different segments of potential employees. Uh, I know that there's on one demographic, you've got younger Canadians that you're trying to draw into the workplace. You've got your semi-retired demographic. You also have the underrepresented groups, which all need to be addressed in a different way. And you need to be working with different communities, uh, community groups within your community to try and attract them. But what I really love about this, particularly just because I'm on a, uh, my background's communication. So for years and years, I had been hearing um, all of the, you know, whether it's marketing, whether it's uh, public relations, whether it's just general communications um, field is um, is kind of the idea that you need to be paying attention to values now uh, as a business. You're no longer a um, uh, taking a backseat to, to society. Um, you need to be to be representing who you employ and you need to be representing your consumers. And I think people forgot that first part. Um, they started looking at what do my consumers want? So they'll buy the product and they forgot, what do my employees want as well? That's an important part of the, the conversation and it, and it should have equal weight um, as well. Um, so it's, it's, it's just kind of now, years later, after hearing those conversations, seeing it actually in action in an industry um, is uh, validating. But, uh, but it's also um, exciting, especially for employers, because... You know, this is a great way to to keep in touch with your keep your your workforce engaged, um, and it's also a great way to to retain them um, because you are you are representing their value. You see, this is a, a clear pathway to that. Um, so, just wanted to add that in. I, I absolutely love that uh, that aspect of it. Um, with that That's said, a, oh, oh no, oh, go no. ahead. No, I was just going to, I really liked that uh, Chris's line that you stole from him, because uh, I think that <laughs> yep. um, for the employers, they can do the same thing, which is to, in addition to telling people what, who they are, they also need to think about themselves, who they are. And we've seen that change with uh, jobs, descriptions, and the way things are going out. Um, it used to be quite like, okay, these are the requirements that you need to have to work here, X, Y, Z. Um, and now it's a lot more skills focused, and we're seeing that with some of FPSC's resources and careers now, where they're really highlighting the skills that are needed and employers are less looking at like, oh, this is Dyson and he went to whatever um, institution as opposed to what skills does Dyson have? Do they, are they actually the ones that we need? And so employers are getting better at doing that internally as well of saying, how do we articulate what you actually need to work here and getting rid of the noise and saying, no, if you've got these skills, you'll succeed. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, we are, uh, running up on time here, so I think I'll, I'll wrap things up and, uh, before I, I do anything, I just want to thank you, Kevin, for joining us. It's been an yeah, absolute you, pleasure. And, uh, you bring a lot of insight into this and I know like labor market is uh, a bit of an abstract for a lot of people, uh, myself included. So thank you for bringing some context into the discussion. Since our episode today revolves around labor, I'd like to close things out by welcoming uh, listeners to explore FBO's many employment and retention resources brought to you by our flagship program, Careers Now. Whether you're a job seeker or employer, part of a large enterprise or a small mom and pop processing startup, Careers Now is designed to work for you. It's a program tailor-made for the food and beverage processing industry here in Ontario, specializing in connecting engaged employers with qualified job seekers. It features a suite of free employment solutions, including online job fairs, employment coaching, mentorship sessions, and skills training. 
If you're interested in learning more about the program or want to get involved with the association, you can visit our website at foodandbeverageontario.ca. I'd also, Kevin, welcome you to uh, invite our listeners over to your association. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, we have a lot of resources. Um, so if you're listening um, and you're not in Ontario, we have nationwide resources available. Um, we also work with all of the regional um, organizations like FBO to, to help them deliver their, their work. So um, we're um, fpsc-ctac.com. Um, online or just Google Food Processing Skills Canada and we come up. Um, yeah, I'm always happy to, uh, to talk labour markets. So thank you, Chris and Dyson, for having me on. Yeah, thank you. Thanks very much. That's all for today's show. So thank you for joining us and we'll catch you next month for our next segment of the Food and Beverage Processor Forum brought to you by Food and Beverage Ontario. Take care, everyone.